Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. Today we wanted to put together an episode for you about the Hong Kong protests and how they're being seized on here in the United States by the punditry class, by the neoconservative class, by the Trump administration itself, and by all the Trump loyalists, all while trade wars happening in the background with China, spurred on by the Trump administration. And ultimately, all this anti-Chinese sentiment that's being created as a result of all this, being hyped up in the media, is serving U.S. hegemonic interests and goals. But we'd like to have someone on who's very informed on the situation in Hong Kong. And that person is Sheila Shao. Sheila is an organizer within the Party for Socialism and Liberation. She's also the editor of Breaking the Chains magazine. And she's currently teaching a class series on China. My family is actually from mainland China. Uh, my parents immigrated to the U.S. in the late 80s. Um, they're from the Guangdong province, which is the province that Hong Kong used to belong to before it was taken uh, from, by the British. We're from a city called Jungsan, which is pretty much a half an hour boat ride away from Hong Kong. Very, very close to Hong Kong. Very culturally similar to Hong Kong. Yeah, so it's it was interesting because um, I don't know if you all know this, but I studied abroad in Hong Kong in 2012. And so that was the first time I had witnessed the anti-mainland racism that I had described earlier um, against uh, mainland Chinese people by Hong Kong locals. And I was like kind of offended because I was, I was like, my parents are from mainland. Why are you talking about mainland Chinese people like that? But I realized they felt it was appropriate to talk to me like that because I'm American. Right. Right. Um, Interesting. So, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very colloquial. People talk, people talk very openly about their discontent about mainland Chinese people in Hong Kong. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us on Media Roots Radio today to discuss this issue. Uh, as we know, the protests in Hong Kong have been going on for several months. There was just another large demonstration yesterday. You know, the latest protests here are kind of the last in a long line of these so-called pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong essentially against mainland China, um, which the Western media covers extremely favorably, uh, very uncritically, with really no historical context here. First, before we get into everything else, just talk about how these latest protests began, because it is a very interesting story. Yeah. So it's really interesting because it all began when a couple, uh, two, two, two people from Hong Kong, were on vacation in Taiwan, where uh, there was an argument between this couple. It resulted in the boyfriend actually murdering his girlfriend, who was pregnant at the time. Um, and then basically, oh yeah, it, he he murdered his girlfriend and then um, basically fled Taiwan back to uh, Hong Kong. The issue now is that they find out that this guy did this crime, committed this crime, um, and, you know, he, there's no way, there's like no way to try him for this crime because there's no extradition treaty between Hong Kong and Taiwan. And because Hong Kong is technically a part of China and China doesn't recognize Taiwan as, uh, an independent nation, they consider Taiwan as a province of China you can see how there's kind of a little bit of confusion of how to deal with the situation. So um, the solution was, okay, then let's have an extradition treaty between Hong Kong and China so that we can officially extradite this person who committed this crime, this heinous crime against his girlfriend, um, and, and, and bring justice for this woman and, and her family. So that's really where it began. It's just really strange that this is over, like the the uproar is over the fact that China wanted to extradite this guy, like a murderer mm-hmm. of of an unborn child and his girlfriend to China. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, isn't there extradition treaties already in place for Britain and the U.S. Yeah, um, in concordance with Hong Kong. So why why is it that it's just an odd kind of thing to spark like mass protests over? Right. 
Yeah, so you're exactly right. Um, Hong Kong has extradition packs with over 20 different countries in the world. That's really not even discussed at all, right? Like, like if we're going to establish a baseline, Hong Kong has extradition packs with over 20 different countries. And extradition, uh, extradition packs are a normal part of diplomacy, right? It's like a normal thing that countries have with one another. So, yeah, why are people so concerned about extradition with China? The protesters really feel like if an extradition bill uh, if an extradition bill with China is passed then that means that China can exploit this bill to persecute whoever they want specifically those with political differences with China but that's actually not true when you actually look at the bill there are 37 different types of crimes in which people can be extradited but none of these explicitly state that people can be extradited based off of political dissent, subversion, or organizing against the government. So that's already off the table. So that's one part of it. There are others that say that the extradition bill would close a loophole that currently exists for basically wealthy, rich people um, who have enjoyed this loophole, uh, who have been able to circumvent uh, the anti-corruption campaign in China. They would, if, if they stayed in China, they would be a part of this anti-corruption campaign. Um, and just for some context of what the anti-corruption campaign is, it's a program that was implemented in 2012 by the president of China, Xi Jinping, to crack down on high-ranking officials who were accused of bribery, political interference, money laundering, any form of abuse of power that would compromise the legitimacy of the Communist Party. So to bring it back to the extradition bill, like this is really just a proxy, a rallying point for this so-called pro-democracy movement to demand independence from China. Um, and actually, after months of protests, the extradition bill was officially declared dead uh, early September. So it's, it's off the table now. It's very interesting. So this pro-democracy protest movement, as it's widely referred to, it seems like it had been sort of uh, right under the surface from the way you're describing it. And this event with the extradition treaty was sort of the catalyst in which it decided to sort of come out of the shadows or something mm -hmm. and, and present this sort of public movement. Is what I'm saying accurate that this was sort of this is the sort of a burgeoning thing that's in Hong Kong that they sort of seized on this event to sort of come out of the woodwork and, and start all these marches? I think that's true. Um, so this actually is one of a series of kind of high-profile movements that have happened over the past couple of years in Hong Kong. The one, the most recent one before was the Umbrella Revolution that took place in 2014, which was around um, the question of universal suffrage in Hong Kong. And so, so all of these so-called pro-democracy movements have been led by people who, um, you know, they, they have localist ideals. And so I kind of want to talk about what that means because localism mm -hmm. is basically a political ideology that centers around defining and preserving a distinct Hong Kong culture and identity. And it manifests in a very right-wing libertarian sort of way and it's very hyper reactionary against people who threaten it so as a result there ends up being a ton of xenophobia directed against mainlanders a lot of this resentment that uh the pro-democracy protesters have have been really misplacing it against mainland chinese people um with their discontent with china the reason why this is happening is because since the handover in 1997 from British rule back to China, there have been relaxed border rules between China and Hong Kong. So there has been kind of a, a, a more flow of Chinese people, mainland Chinese people and tourism into Hong Kong. And this kind of exacerbates this resentment that Hong Kong people have towards mainlanders. So there's a lot of really confusing, nuanced, complicated um, tensions that are happening uh, because there, there also is, you know, a growing economic crisis in Hong Kong that is, is currently unresolved because it's still a, operating as a capitalist society.
Yeah, no, it's really, really interesting because, of course, the Western media and a lot of people just treat all protests around the world as um, great and just automatically support them without really understanding these nuances and, of course, the context of how these arose. I mean, I guess let's just start by talking about just the class character and demographics um, of of who is leading these protests and, you know, the leadership and, you know, like who is in the streets. Right. Basically. Yeah. So... There was a study that was done by Chinese University of Hong Kong where they went into these protests to interview people um, and survey them to see exactly what the demographics of these protesters look like. Uh, The most key point here, I think, is that it's mostly young people between the ages 20 to 30 who are participating. This is significant, right, because the handover from British to China of Hong Kong in 1997 happened either before most of these people were born or when these people were very young children. Um, That means they didn't really live under British colonial rule. That's very significant. Mm -hmm. They're also mostly educated. They're uh, considered very highly educated, you know, have college degrees They also self-identify as middle class. And it was interesting because the report specifically says that these uh, people identify as middle class and not lower class. Whether or not that's true remains to be seen. I mean, they didn't actually collect information about their income status or anything like that. But it's I think it's telling that they they identify as middle class Um, in terms of who's in the leadership. This protest is considered a leaderless movement, but there are definitely clear key players, right? Joshua Wong, who was one of the uh, prominent organizers of the Umbrella Revolution of uh, 2014, which I mentioned earlier. Um, he actually, it's interesting, He's he recently went to the U.S. to meet before Congress um, to talk with leaders of, of, of the U.S. government about these Hong Kong protests. Not only that, but Joshua Wong has a, a long-standing relationship with Marco Rubio, where Marco Rubio nominated oh Joshua Wong. Yeah, he, Joshua Wong was nominated by Marco Rubio for the Nobel Peace Prize. So, what? Oh my God. Yeah. Um, That's hilarious. Yeah, I know. So it's just, it's like, it's when you think about who Marco Rubio is and why he's supporting Joshua Wong, I, I just feel that that people should think about that with a critical eye, right? Um, Joshua Wong also recently traveled to Germany. Uh, He met with German uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs to discuss the situation in Hong Kong. And he wasn't officially able to meet with uh, German Chancellor Chancellor Angela Merkel, but he actually wrote a letter to her. And I just want to, like, talk about this letter because it's, also very telling, where he specifically cites the movement to overthrow the communist governments in East Germany as a model for what he wants to see in Hong Kong. Wow. And he specifically writes, quote, if we are now in a new Cold War, Hong Kong is the new Berlin. So Joshua knows who his audience is. He he knows he's really seizing this opportunity to look for the U.S. and other Western countries to back this movement. Um, then that's just Joshua Wong. That like the other key uh, right. organizers, Nathan Law, um, as well as Martin Lee, they're like big faces of the pro democracy movement. They've all received funding and awards by the National Endowment for Democracy, um, as we know, is a CIA funded. Yeah, so the National Endowment for Democracy is a CIA-funded front organization basically to sow political discord and regime change for U.S. foreign interests. Oh, just going to say, just merely pointing these things out is almost sacrilegious because it, it seems to s- sort of strike this nerve in people that you're totally delegitimizing any aspect of this protest movement by just pointing out that, as you said, Joshua Wong has a relationship with Marco Rubio. Uh, There are other protest leaders, and maybe this will ring a bell for you. I I don't know their names, but I saw some of these other protest leaders, or even maybe there are media moguls from Hong Kong meeting with uh, John Bolton and other Trump administration officials like Mike Pompeo, I believe. Mm -hmm. 
Can you shed any light on that? Well, like I said, Joshua Wong uh, and along with a couple of other movement leaders met before Congress like a couple weeks ago. And okay. they met before Congress because they want Washington to pass a bipartisan bill called the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which basically states that the U.S. will conduct annual assessments about whether or not Hong Kong is sufficiently autonomous from the People's Republic of China. And that's just ridiculous. Like, why would the U.S. be dictating whether or not Hong Kong is sufficiently autonomous, you know, when it can't do that for its own country? So um, this would further, like, if, if this act were passed then this would freeze assets and bar entry of any official that is found to be complicit in suppressing these so-called basic freedoms in Hong Kong. It'll also ensure things like, um, you know, that Hong Kong is abiding by U.S. export regulations, including sanctions. And of course, um, you know, there are a ton of sponsors for this bill, but Marco Rubio is is one of the sponsors of this bill, right? (laughs) He just uh, really cares about democracy in between <laughs> I mean, s- tweeting snuff photos and like Bible quotes. He's just really passionate, passionate, Sheila. I know. And it's just so crazy, right? Because like you think about Marco Rubio and who he is. Like I, 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 I will never forget what, what he posted on Twitter around the time of the, yeah. the U.S. tension with Venezuela, right? Where he like posted this horrific picture of like the lynching of Libya's former leader Gaddafi, right? Threatening basically saying that if Nicolas Maduro didn't comply with U.S. demands, that this is what's going to happen to him. This is the person that Joshua Wong is going to for so-called freedom in Hong Kong. That's just, like, atrocious to me. Yeah, no, of course. And then and then in between Bible quotes that he's tweeting. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, Robbie, you made a good point, and I think it's, you know, it's kind of, it becomes hyperbolic to discuss things like this because it seems like there is nuance removed from a lot of the discussion on on the left, frankly. I mean, about, you know, because Joshua Wong is meeting with Marco Rubio does not designate the entire protest movement as a CIA operation or CIA-funded movement. I mean, we're talking about millions of disaffected youth, as you're mentioning, Sheila, who grew up with no kind of semblance of how life was like, mm-hmm. right? Kind of like similarly to Venezuelan youth who are disaffected and experiencing like very real effects of the economic war. And they just couple that with the government mm-hmm. um, without really understanding what life was like before the Bolivarian revolution, how much more difficult it was. Um, and, and so, you know, it's just interesting that um, th- there's little room for for nuance and discussion about about the reality, right? Like there's mm-hmm. aspects of the protests that are obviously being co-opted and exploited by the U.S. establishment. That's no doubt. But there are very like real. There's a very real movement. There's you know these people are really passionate about what they believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, I mean, so you kind of it, it's kind of hard to get that story. Right. Um, you know what I mean? Because it's just kind of like cartoonishly depicted in like one way or the other. Yeah. Exactly. Just like Venezuela, it seems like this is always kind of a trend. There's also counter protests, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you you did a really great talk about this, and you were showing these protests, like massive protests that are pro government. Um, talk about that and like the class character <clears throat> and demographics of those. Right. So um, the the older generation is mostly the one that's supporting the government. But actually, if you look at the pictures, they they look rather multi-generational. It's just that there are more older participants in the uh, pro-China, pro-Hong Kong government side than the pro-democracy side. And if I'm going to reduce it down to one thing, it's really because these folks have lived through <laughs> life under Br- British colonial rule, right? Um, Chinese people were effectively reduced to second-class citizens under British colonialism. Um, a lot of folks don't actually realize this, but Hong Kong was an apartheid state. Like, like, like it was a white settler city where in um, periods of time, uh, Chinese people were not allowed in, in certain parts of their own land, <laughs> That's that's how that's how wow. life was like, right? Um, and something else that's not talked about is that during the entirety of British colonial rule, all 155 years, the governor of Hong Kong was appointed by the British. Uh, none of the Hong Kong leaders 
were ever elected by the people until after Hong Kong was handed over to the People's Republic of China. So when the pro-democracy protests talk about universal suffrage, they completely ignore this history as if like the British brought democracy to Hong Kong when in fact it, 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 it <laughs> did the complete opposite. So when this older generation sees the pro-democracy side taking the bait of imperialist countries like the U.S., they see this as a reversion back to this colonial subjugation. A lot of these people saw 97, you know, the handover as, uh, you know, an end to colonialism, a reunification with its motherland, China as its motherland. And another thing that I want to highlight, because a lot of people think it's just pro-China versus anti-China. Well, a lot of the people mm-hmm. on the pro-China side actually feel like a discussion about independence of Hong Kong is a justified discussion. They feel like, yeah, like, you know, Hong Kong has qualitatively developed very differently from China and it it might benefit from being independent from China. It might not. But what what I, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that, like, this discussion, this debate is a justified debate, but it needs to be settled between Hong Kong and China. It, it cannot be exploited by the imperialists or else it's 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 not going to actually be about self-determination. It's really interesting you say that, Chile, because I, I did see a video clip from all these clips that have been coming out of the protests where an older guy in Hong Kong who wasn't supportive of the protest is sort of asked on the street what he thinks of the march that's happening right next to him. And he says something very similar to what you just said, that he is actually interested in the discussion and he thinks he's he thinks that they should have every right to further that discussion. But he's he's actually angry at the fact that they're waving around British flags yeah. during the protest. <laughs> yeah. And he's and he's and he's very confused by that. Mm-hmm. And as a Westerner, I, I am equally as confused by that. And maybe just a little bit more explanation would help with that. Like why Every, after everything you've said about the British colonial occupation of Hong Kong, what is it? Mm-hmm. Why why are they sort of idealizing this era if everything you say is correct, that the governor was a, basically a puppet governor, etc.? Like, what is it about that that's nostalgic for them? Is that Where does that even come from, I guess, is what I'm asking. Again, it's this younger generation who didn't live through... British occupation, right? So what they see instead is a Western culture that they would rather identify with. I think they kind of fall into this trap of even othering mainland Chinese people. Like I said, it, I mean, well, sometimes I talk yeah. to people and they're confused. They're like, how could Chinese people in Hong Kong be racist towards Chinese people from mainland China? Aren't they the same? I mean, like it's, conf- it's confusing for people. Well, but it's, it's because they're so culturally different. Um, I think what they're idealizing is a Western way of life, right? They look, I mean, a lot of these folks are integrated with, especially with social media, like integrated with Western culture. So I think they idealize a lot of the cultural aspects of, um, you know, what it means to be Western, right? Like when you actually look at these protesters and you, you hear what they have to say, like, they talk about democracy, but they don't actually describe what that means, right? Um, they're not talking about the conditions that they're facing in Hong Kong, which is really confusing because when we think about protest movements in the U.S., the demands are very much about the material conditions. This is very much um, an ideological war. I think that there's a lot of anti um, China propaganda, you know, there's a lot of anti-communism. Um, but I, I believe that there's a, the, the history is void from any of this discussion. So maybe like, you know, it would be good to describe how Hong Kong became a colony of the British in the first place. Because another thing that folks like to say is like, well, they, they, people like to describe China as a new colonial power over Hong Kong as if Hong Kong was not actually a part of, of China before the British took it over. In 1839, after a number of trade negotiations between China and the British, 
Um, you know, China refused to import British opium. Uh, opium, there's a huge opium crisis in China. Uh, but the trade deficit was so big, you know, the British wanted to tap into China's market, but China basically was like, well, we don't need to buy anything from you. We have everything that we need, you know, um, and the British didn't like that. So uh, when the Chinese government was like, we don't want your British opium, the British then waged uh, the opium, the first opium war against China. Um, you know, the British saw China as a fifth of the the world's population, which was an untapped market. And so this was a, a way for the British to basically force China into a semi-colonial state. So when China was defeated in the Opium War, this was a huge turn in the country's history. And one of the concessions of this war was the handover or the secession of Hong Kong to the United Kingdom. Um, this is like a huge humiliation to the Chinese government at the time, right? This is, this is the, this is like the, the pivotal war that launched China from being one of the most advanced civilizations in the world to a semi-colonial state. And so the people of Hong Kong, they, they, they see this and they feel this, right? The people who are against imperialism, um, against the pro-democracy protests, they understand this history. They 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 understand they were taken away from their motherland. So, um, under British rule, like I said earlier, Hong Kong was effectively a, a settler city. Um, it had an apartheid system. You know, even though Chinese people made up ninety eight percent of Hong Kong's population, they were subjected to um, the worst forms of poverty. Right? Um, Chinese people were expected to abide by curfew laws and if they were uh found to be violating any of these laws or ordinance um they would be subjected to public beatings and even public whippings so like the brutality that chinese people faced under british rule uh you know can't even really be exaggerated because that's just what it was another thing what about political prisoners and stuff I mean, yeah, so there couldn't even be political participation under British rule. Uh, mm -hmm. So the official language of Hong Kong was English up until the 1970s, which meant all of its political system was conducted in English. So Chinese people, wow. unless they were afforded an education, couldn't speak, read, or write English. So even if they wanted to participate in the legal system, they really couldn't unless they were of a higher status, had the money to go to school and learn English. Um, so yeah, and then like I mentioned earlier, right, like not only are they systematically kept from po politically participating, the governor of Hong Kong was appointed all throughout its colonial, like, you know, era. <laughs> so it's confusing when these pro-democracy protesters are looking to the British and the U.S. Um, for assistance, for legal, for universal suffrage. It makes no sense when, under British rule, they just didn't even have that. And it wasn't until they were reunified with China that a legal system was in place to elect a chief executive. It might not be the best uh, elections process, but there at least is one. So, so at this point, how does the elections differ from British colonial rule? So, the, so there's still like an approval process within mainland China, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Hong Kong's political system now, they are able to elect its own chief executive. And one of the things that you'll hear from the pro-democracy side is that the chief executive is a puppet of Beijing that... Um, that Beijing is just handpicking people to, to serve in place of, you know, ruling Hong Kong. And so the chief executive, and I'll just kind of explain how the elections process looks like, right? So the chief executive yeah. is elected by an elections committee of about 1,200 people representing over 38 different sectors in Hong Kong society. And each candidate... Uh, that's up to be elected 
must first be voted at 50% or more by the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, which is a legislative body of the People's Republic of China, um, you know, prior to the elections. So there is a vetting process that does take place. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at the political participation of a lot of the people who are nominated, like they're not even affiliated with the Communist Party. They're actually from different parties. I think what the People's Republic of China is attempting to do with this um, standing committee of the National People, People's Congress where they vote someone in at 50% before they can even go up for elections is that they want to make sure that this person is not going to deliberately subvert the government, mm -hmm. which is like, which makes sense, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so this is uh, what the pro-democracy people mean uh, when they say that someone is handpicked by the People's Republic of China, which is not necessarily true. Um, you know, they just want to make sure that they're not, that there isn't going to be a potential candidate that's going to, again, take the bait of U.S. imperialism and overthrow the Communist Party, right? Um, so there is this elections process in place. A sector of those who make up the elections committee are directly elected by the people of Hong Kong. And then the other um, section of the elections committee are, are elected by those 38 sectors that I mentioned earlier. So it's a little confusing, but nonetheless, it is a process that's in place. Whereas again, prior to 97, the person was just appointed by the British government. And it was like under martial law, essentially, like the curfew. I mean, the mm -hmm. the uh, retaliation for like violating those rules and stuff sounds pretty brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And this is from what my little understanding of it is that the is that Hong Kong is semi autonomous mm -hmm. from China, I guess, in a, just a, a simplified way. Explain how do those two systems actually work together in a, in a general sense for people who don't understand that. Yeah. It is not completely independent, but it, it does have some. So explain that in a little more detail. Yeah, I think it's actually way more autonomous than people think, right? Uh, basically, the one country, two systems says that Hong Kong recognizes that they are a part of China, but that they can retain its economic system, their administrative affairs as usual, uh, they can operate using their own currency. They can have their own legal system, legislative system. Uh, and then in 50 years, that will be reevaluated. A lot of people treat the terms of one country, two system, where it expires in 50 years. So in 2047, they treat that as like a, a doom, a doomsday. But really, I think what's going to happen yeah. in 2047 is that they're just going to renegotiate the terms. Um, most people like the one country, two systems, even the people who are, you know, like there's this misconception that people are against this one country, two systems and that they just want full secession. Actually, only 11% of the Hong Kong population want full independence. A lot of them prefer just the one country, two systems. So I kind of have a feeling that that's what's going to happen. Um, but who knows? Uh, so to bring it back Hong Kong operates business as usual, um, just with the recognition that they're a part of China. And they get to enjoy things like national holidays that China has, right? Like, uh, I, I recently was in Hong Kong right before the protests, and I was hanging out with um, my cousin and his friend who owns a bunch of restaurants in China, or I mean in Hong Kong. And she was working on a Friday night, I remember, um, and we went to go visit her, and my, my cousin was like, why are you working? Don't you have people who can work? Like, don't you own this restaurant? You, you, like, just come hang out with us. We were trying to get her to hang out with us. And she was like, no, I can't because it's, it's a national holiday. I can't, basically she was saying, I can't force people to work on a national holiday, you know, now that they're a part of China. Like, those are the, those are, I mean, it's an anecdote, but it's just kind of crazy, right? When people talk about, like, China taking over Hong Kong, well, it's just really, they're just integrating their systems in this, this sort of way. Sheila, when I was there last year, um, I was pretty shocked and alarmed by the amount of anti-communist propaganda, by the amount of just anti-China 
um, anti-homeland propaganda in the mm-hmm. streets. There's the Falun Gong practitioners that are just everywhere lobbying in English, like clearly targeted to tourists, right? Mm-hmm. And just just the fact that like it just felt more Western. Mm-hmm. It felt like just some bizarre like amalgamation of some like you know, like some like dystopian future city, like taken over by capitalism, but still like hijacking and co-opting like parts of the East mm-hmm. felt just kind of odd in a general sense. And that's, I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like young people living in Hong Kong and growing up in Hong Kong experience the same sort of influx of propaganda as we do in the West mm-hmm. about China, about all these things and bringing it back to what you said about the material conditions kind of being absent. Like, I mean, Hong Kong has the biggest rent crisis in the world, if I'm not mistaken, like the biggest housing crisis. And so Mm -hmm. it's interesting to kind of ideologically center this around like anti-communism when Mm -hmm. really, I mean, good God, like what is capitalism doing to help the rent situation and alleviate people out of poverty? Right. And like, what are the demands here? Because as you mentioned, I mean, the government already capitulated to the like the extradition thing. Mm -hmm. So what exactly are the demands and why is it that you think that like they're not centered more around the conditions that capitalism creates? Well, you know, that's a good question, right? I don't think that there is a critical analysis that's happening amongst the leadership of these pro-democracy protests in effectively understanding the conditions of what people are facing versus this ideological warfare, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Like you said, Hong Kong has one of the worst, I think the worst housing crisis in the world. It's worse than San Francisco. It's worse than New York, which is crazy. Um, Because we, in the U.S., we understand what that means, right? It's pretty bad. So, um, So there is like this really terrible housing crisis, but also this the this crisis that most young people of our generation are facing now where like you know you're highly educated but there aren't jobs available to you um well you know one of the things that hong kong has been able to do now that it's under one country two systems is it's allowed to do things to address its poverty issue maybe not at the rate in which they could if they were fully integrated with china Um, And as a side note, you know, China, over the course of its 70 years, has lifted 800 million people out of poverty. Um, It can't actually do that in Hong Kong because Hong Kong is autonomous. But at the very Mm -hmm. least, the chief executive um, in Hong Kong has been able to officially uh, create a commission on poverty where they are trying to address the issue. One of the things that I found in um, researching the poverty issue in Hong Kong is that the the elderly population has a poverty rate of 30%. 30%, right? And when you think about the, the protesters, like I said, they're all very young. So th- those who are facing even the worst impoverished situations, they're likely not uh, out on the streets demanding things to change right they're they're there's they're you know in a crisis um so i think it's it's this i guess i point this out to say that the the composition of those who are in the pro-democracy camp are not actually fully representative of those who are facing the worst types of poverty that uh that hong kong people are facing so again you know i think there's a there's a clear class character in the protests, I think that even though a lot of the young people might be feeling the economic constraint, economic anxiety, they're misplacing it um, on China. They're saying it's China's fault when really it's just a legacy of, of you know, a century of colonialism and also just like this unrestrained capitalism. Um, and again, it's it's kind of, it's basically scapegoating, right? Mainland Chinese people, uh, where people in in Hong Kong regularly refer to mainland Chinese women who um, move to Hong Kong and have their children in Hong Kong, they refer to their those children as anchor babies. It's like a super racist, derogatory slur that even like bigots in the U.S. use against immigrants. So this is like, you know, I I, I don't think people are talking about this at all and and how nuanced these types of relationships are. Well, let's go a little deeper into this aspect you just mentioned. Uh, the the I guess the ugly character 
of some of the rhetoric and the stuff coming out from some of the protesters. Um, definitely not all of them, um, because I don't want to paint all of them as being racist. The the kind of xenophobia and racism that is involved uh, in some of these protesters' rhetoric. I guess give us some more examples of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. The you know this this referring to referring to the them as anchor babies. Give us some examples of that mm-hmm. besides what you already mentioned, and also uh, examples of things that could be even described as violent. Mm-hmm acts carried out by the protesters where the western media of course this is the favorite thing that we like to do here in america is show video clips with very little context showing protesters getting beaten by police or tear gassed Mm -hmm. but we don't see videotapes or clips sort of showing the protesters being violent you know there is a lot of that happening so i guess going to describe some of that ugly character of some aspects of this protest movement violence or racism right Um, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I will say that, you know, the violent uh, sectors of the Hong Hong Kong protests are not necessarily representative of the entire um, body of those who are protesting. But there is a radical faction that has kind of taken leadership and have have a kind of powerful leadership. a voice in the movement so that there is a radical faction. really quickly are they are they turning a blind eye to like the other leaders that you mentioned before like are they kind of um advocating this violence or at least turning a blind eye have they denounced it i and then I, I, I think saying. they're justifying it yeah i think these the mm-hmm. these protesters or like the um so like joshua wong and them whenever they're confronted with these questions they're they basically say that it's justified and it's because they're not uh hong kong is not meeting their demands so yeah, um, but these this radical faction of this opposition, right, of the pro-democracy protests have been perpetrating all kinds of violence in Hong Kong without really any police confrontation. So uh, some of these acts of violence are things such as throwing Molotov cocktails, um, continually damaging property, disrupting the MTR stations, which is their metro station, um, arson, you know, throwing things at people. Uh, when you look at the videos of all of the of, of these violent um, acts, I've actually seen some horrific videos that sometimes I can't even finish watching them because it just makes me so angry, where these protesters are publicly beating journalists who are from mainland China, or journalists in general trying to cover this uh, these protests in an objective way. Um, I've seen videos of these protesters beating mainland Chinese people, uh, explicitly beating them. I've, I saw one where a guy was pushed down the escalator. Um, and also a lot of the violent uh, confrontations have happened between people of the protest side of the pro-democracy side against Hong Kong people who are either sympathetic to the People's Republic of China, who are pro-China, or even just people who are merely against the protests on the basis that they're violent and disruptive. So they've been able to perpetrate a lot of these acts without actually being confronted by the police without police interference. Uh, one of the crazy things that I saw was that uh, a couple weeks ago, the protesters set the central MTR station on fire. And the central MTR station is like right in the heart of like the financial center of Hong Kong Island. So it's a major MTR station. They not only started a fire for at this metro station, but they actually dug up the pavement on the main road, they laid down cardboard and created a fire barricade between the protesters and the police. And this all happened without the police interfering, you know? And and this is just like a, a, a depiction of what has been happening over the past two to three months. Um, and on the question of like, you know, how has the Hong Kong police been dealing with this? I have spoken to some people and and they're they basically told me like the Hong Kong police like they don't really know what they're doing because they don't want to use force. Um 
And so when the media, um, I don't know if you, I'm sure you all are aware of this, but the media kind of opportunistically calls um, any type of police interference or uh, police interaction with the protesters as rampant police brutality committed by the you know authoritarian government of China, puppets of China um, and the Hong Kong government. Uh, but when you look at the video footage, you can actually see how much restraint the police in Hong Kong have. Um, where, uh, where these protesters have severely beaten cops on several occasions without retaliation by the police. I actually saw a video of a protester who took a baton out of a cop's belt and started beating him with it. Oh my god. So this is like... <laughs> Can you imagine if that happened here? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. What would happen to us if, if, if someone at a protest in the United States did that to a cop? We'd be dead immediately, right? Um... These cops, um, even though they're armed, there hasn't been one instance where a gun was used for so-called self-defense, right? Uh, they, they haven't really resorted to any lethal weapons. Um, one of the other incidents that I like to point out to people, because I think it's important to understand where the, where the police are at, is that there is one incident where an armed cop, he was cornered by a group of rioters. Um, and after, you know, feeling completely helpless, he finally pulls out his gun to scare them off. And his colleague, who was right next to him, actually ordered him to stop. And he says this in Cantonese. He says, put the gun away. These are our own people. And basically what he's saying is we don't wow. do that to our own people, right? They see, the cops see civilians as human beings, unlike here in the United States, right? If 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 a cop pulled out his gun at a protest while he was being... Um, you know, ravaged by rioters in the United States, we'd—they'd all be dead. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, or, or facing like over a hundred years in prison. I mean, like the Antifa protesters, and you know, during the inauguration. I mean, they were facing a hundred years, and we're talking about journalists, videographers. So, I mean, yeah, that—that's the least of what would happen. But go ahead, Robbie. Oh, just going to say that one clip was being circulated. Uh, around U.S. media, around social media, showing how brutal the police were against the protesters. But as Sheila just pointed out, that video clip to me showed something different, where if an American SWAT police was beaten up like on the streets and, and jumped like that video showed, that police officer would have drawn his firearm and actually shot people. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that the police actually did not shoot anybody, but still sort of unholstered his firearm is kind of unpresent. I mean, you would never see anything like that happen here. No. So if they're trying exactly. to show that clip as a comparison to how brutal their police are compared to the rest of the world or look how tyrannical this is, mm -hmm. it's just simply not effective. I mean, you have to show it in context. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of videos you can find of American police doing absolutely brutal things to protesters uh, and nobody ever circulates those clips in other countries and says, look how you know, tyrannical the American <laughs> government is. We need to overthrow it. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. it is kind of cartoonish when you look at the, when you zoom out and look at all this in context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Let's talk really quickly about the U.S. role in exacerbating and funding this. You mentioned it and you mentioned NED. You mentioned um, some of the leaders coming and meeting with like crazed and bloodthirsty neocons. Mm -hmm. um, again, we're not discounting the fact that there are people who are legitimately, you know, in this movement. I mean, but there are factions that are being completely exploited and co-opted mm -hmm. for the means and goals of U.S. imperialism. Right. Yeah. And, and on behalf of the U.S. empire. So can you briefly talk just more about like the U.S. funding of opposition movements on the ground? Like how much money are we talking about? What kind of what is the U.S.'s role here in like fomenting what's going on? I mean, it's it's very interesting, right? Uh, whenever you look at the National Endowment for Democracy and you look at the countries that it funds, it's, it's always places where you know that there is obviously political tension within those countries, but it's being completely exploited by the United States for its own foreign interests. And really, you know, the United States is invested in destabilizing China. That's a fact, right? It's, I don't think they anticipated that China would grow so rapidly into a global power to be a country that has a lot of influence in the rest of the world. So it's very interested in toppling 
China, which now threatens U.S. hegemony, you know, as a global power. So, um, you know, that's why the U.S. is instituting this crazy trade war with China, and it's not working at all. Um, it's, you know, w when we look at when we look at the way the U.S. is trying to depict its uh, role in Hong Kong, uh, if it were to pass this democracy, this Hong Kong Human Rights or this Hong Kong Democracy and Human Rights Act, um, you know, it likes to posit itself as a country that's committed to sovereignty and freedom of the people of Hong Kong. What is it actually behind this? I mean, it's not about democracy. It's obviously about like overthrowing mm -hmm. the Communist Party and mm -hmm. defeating China as a hegemon. And right, I mean, the, right. the whole the whole bill like would just put Hong Kong under like the subjugation of the U.S. Mm -hmm. essentially. Right. Like the U.S. would be the arbitrator to decide all the shit. It's like, how is that democracy and how is that sovereignty? Right. 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 Yeah. So it, basically the U.S. is not committed to sovereignty in Hong Kong. Um, that's a lie, you know, we, I think that we can basically deduce that from any, any type of U.S. intervention anywhere else in the world. So <laughs> the U.S. is very much interested in overthrowing China, the Communist Party of China, because China has evolved into a global competitor against the United States, right? Um, China is embarking on a project, which I'm sure you all have heard of, which is the One Belt, One Road initiative. This initiative would connect 71 countries in the entire world, um, covering over 50% of the world's population, with China at the center. So if this project uh, were successful, it would allow for economic cooperation and diplomacy across all of these countries, right? And this is a huge threat to U.S. hegemony. The issue is that the way US, the U.S. has conducted any type of foreign policy has always been in a way that's not diplomatic at all. Uh, and a lot of countries are looking to China because they feel that China is more diplomatic than the, than the U.S. So it's really disingenuous when politicians within the U.S. government speak in solidarity with these movements, right? Because what they're really saying is we want to foment... Uh, discontent in Hong Kong with the aims of destabilizing China, right? They they see the U.S. Mm -hmm. as a global competitor. They want to destabilize China. They don't care about life. They don't they don't really care about the living standards of people in Hong Kong. They don't care about um, the basic needs that people have in Hong Kong or in China. Because if they did, they would recognize that China has lifted eight hundred million people out of poverty. Um, over the course of 70 years. But that's that's not important to them, right? That's not important to the United States. The Pentagon is really preparing right now for a great power rivalry between the China and the U.S. And, and it's interesting, Sheila, it seems like what at least the liberal leaning sort of pundit class in the United States wants us to care the most about right now in China is this idea that Muslims are being rounded up and basically put in these concentration camps mm -hmm. and it's just so interesting because these same you know you could argue a lot of these people who are pushing this now are neoconservative right. um, like barry right. weiss mm -hmm. as she yeah. just went on bill maher to mention this this uger situation and how bad it was but yet these same people were dehumanizing muslims as a whole especially arab muslims yeah uh you know not, not that long ago and that was their whole bread and butter after 9 11 right so just super disingenuous to see them saying you know that we should be outraged about this right and it right. also makes it really difficult for someone like me to know what's actually accurate in that mm -hmm. um and there was a video clip recently i don't know if you saw this sheila where it was like secretly clandestinely filmed of showing what appeared to be, I guess, Chinese troops ushering a bunch of Muslims wearing like what almost looked like Guantanamo Bay mm -hmm. head masks. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking, you know, nobody here is outraged when, and I'm not saying that uh, that video didn't show what it, what it said it was showing, but I don't remember anyone here being outraged when we would show us, you know, basically throwing Muslims into an illegal gulag yeah. with sensory deprivation masks on. But just in general, I mean, what, why don't you go into just really quick what, how the U.S. is using that 
that subject against China and how this sort of kind of goes along with all these other things happening right now. It seems like they're amping up that rhetoric at the same time these Hong Kong protests are happening, at the same time this trade war Mm -hmm. with China is happening. I think, you know, kind of describe a little bit of that in context. What does Europe take on how that's being used? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Um, the truth is, right, there there isn't a lot of reporting that's happening on the on the Uyghur Muslims. But I would I will say that again, the Xinjiang region, which is the Uyghur uh, autonomous region, is a region that's funded. Uh, that is, you know, one of the regions in which the National Endowment for Democracy will fund. I was watching a a video recently where it was described that one of the the major organizations that's basically championing this issue, leading this issue about the Uyghur Muslims is funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. And I agree, it's completely hypocritical that all of a sudden corporate media and the United States and even progressive uh, democratic uh, you know, politicians in the U.S. are now all of a sudden concerned about Muslims, right? When we know what happened to Muslim people in the U.S. after 9-11, the type of Islamophobia that people faced here uh, for simply being Muslim or even just appearing um, like they were, right? So definitely the Uyghur Muslim situation is complicated. When you look at any type of coverage on the Uyghur uh, situation, these so-called detention centers, right, when you look at them, they just look like education centers, right? People are going there. They're they're not they're not being treated the way that immigrants are being treated in detention centers here at our own border. So, again, I ha- you know when you look at the coverage, it's you can see how exaggerated these narratives are about the Uyghur Muslims. Another thing that's often eliminated from these discussions. The Uyghur Muslims is not the biggest Muslim population in China. You know, China is a very ethnically diverse uh, region. And there are uh, Muslim-majority areas within China that are not facing so-called religious persecution the way that the the media likes to say that the Uyghur Muslims are facing. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that I've found in my research ar- around the Uyghur Muslims is that... Um, China has actually done a lot, maybe not the best uh, affirmative action laws, but they at least have affirmative action laws that basically state that if you are an ethnic minority, that you will um, get special consideration for entries into school, right, into colleges. Um, Something that often is not talked about is that China uh, has state-funded trips to Mecca, for Muslim people in China, wow. they have, um, you know, they have specific provinces where halal food is authorized, right, and produced. So there's a lot to aid, like material life for ethnic mi- minorities, including Muslim people in China. That's not being discussed at all. And of course, there is resentment. There is racism even within China of Han Chinese, which is the ethnic majority, against ethnic minorities because they feel that, oh, like, you know, ethnic minorities in China are, are getting special treatment. And the, and that that is real, right? But the difference is that the Communist Party of China is trying to deal with that by, you know, saying that this is the right thing to do. And another thing that I would like to mention, you know, I don't want to go too much into the the topic of censorship because it's a it's a big question, it's a big topic, but again, one of the things that I found in my research is that because of this racism that Han Chinese people were um, having towards ethnic minorities, specifically Muslims, is that China outlawed Islamophobia or is censoring Islamophobia from the media and saying that this isn't allowed. In what instance in the U.S. has any type of bigotry been outlawed, you know? So um, just kind of giving a, a glimpse of the way China is dealing with lifting ethnic minorities within China, but it's not perfect, 
but it's doing something more than any other country or at least the United States has ever done for ethnic minorities. It's so fascinating that we, and I just wanted to just say two more quick things and then we'll let you go. Um, it's just fascinating, Robbie, and I'm sure you can attest to this, just like our whole lives being told that China is this authoritarian dictatorship that censors everything, right? Like it's just a censorship model and that, you know, you, the U.S. is this bastion of freedom and that we have just this pure democracy. I mean, look at what just happened in the last year of like these giant tech corporations just like preemptively censoring the internet, <laughs> like right, changing right. all the algorithms, backpaging all of this content that essentially criticizes exactly what we're talking about, kind of U.S. imperialism narratives. Um, and it's just really interesting because this wasn't even a law mandating them to do this. This was just them mm -hmm. literally acquiescing to the pressure that was just built up from like the fake news, anti-Russia hysteria. Right. Um, but they'll still point to China and just be like, China's terrible. It's mm -hmm. like, well, what is the difference of what we're doing here? It's actually more bizarre mm -hmm. that this is happening here. And like everyone just thinks that it's fine. Yeah. Remember, uh, you guys, how much outrage there was in the U.S., even from sort of the liberal class about a company like Google putting a filtered version of their search engine, making that active in China according yeah. to the Chinese government's wishes. Yeah. That was hugely controversial and considered really wrong on Google's part. But yet when they're doing the same thing essentially here, but in a much more sort of insidious fashion where they're dictating what's being filtered out and we don't really know mm – -hmm. It's not a controversy and it's just considered okay. Right. Because we need to get rid of all the, you know, right wing hate speech or Russian disinformation that's flooded the internet. So therefore we need to censor the entire internet. I mean, it's <laughs> it's kind of comical. And I'm not saying that it's a better model that China has, but it's it's like at least we have a clear line from way we, the things that Chinese government doesn't want to be shown on Google to what Google shows. But here it's even more confusing because it's not the government necessarily dictating it directly. It's all these sort of national security figures and, and think tankers and things. And it's, it, it's a confusing landscape. So I'm, I know I'm ranting, but it's just, it's just when you compare all these things and put them into context and then even go back into the past. I mean, the 1990s, we were sort of led to believe Falun Gong and the Free Tibet movement were these sort of these fully organic uprisings, but that come to find out they were also funded and mm -hmm. boosted by the U.S. State Department and the CIA mm -hmm. and probably the NED even back then. Yeah. And so you kind of have to see all these things in context and, you know, not say that they're completely manufactured, but they are tools of the U.S. Uh, government and U.S. empire. Right. They, they boost these things. But that's all I have to say. I'm sorry. I just went off the tangent. Do you guys no, want to close it out with something? <laughs> Wrap it up by just talking about what you think the best position for leftists in the U.S. is to take is um, on the situation and what sources do you recommend people to kind of get more information about it? Um, to talk about what I think the best position is. Well, I, I think every leftist, if you're committed to especially anti-imperialism, you at least have to do yourself the duty of understanding the history of what's going on. You have to do the work of understanding uh, the historical uh, trajectory that this has taken shape. You can't actually understand what's happening in China without understanding the very first Opium War of 1839, you know, and how colonialism um, has continued to try to uh, ravage China um, and then to this point, right, why people um, in China and in Hong Kong are so against these pro-democracy movements, right? You can't really understand it without understanding the history. So I would say for people who are really committed to anti-imperialism, leftists, at least try to understand the history, um, understand the role that the U.S. plays in fomenting discontent, even if it's legitimized tension within a region, it's not the U.S.'s place to dictate the outcomes of that. And whenever it's done that, it's, it's exploited these types of tensions for their own gain, meanwhile destructing, destroying these places, right? We saw what happened in Libya uh, when the U.S. went into Libya. It's now a modern slave market. That's what democracy did, so-called democracy did to Libya, you know? So, I think it's really understanding the consequences of U.S. Uh, intervention, really critically looking at the media, um, trying to check the assumptions that 
you might already have about China, uh, just based off of what our education has taught us. You know, I, I think a lot of what we talked about here is just this assumption that China is this big, bad, evil monster without any context at all or any type of um, analysis to make sense of, of, of China at all. Like, there's no good faith effort to try to even understand Chinese society. And I think that we owe it to ourselves as people who are fighting for justice to know all of this. Um, it takes time, it's hard, but like having these discussions is a, is a first step. Very well right. said. And also just like appreciating, yeah, really, really well said. And just like appreciating the independence and sovereignty of peoples to decide their own future yeah. and have self-determination. And I'm sure there's tons of people with discontent with the government and that's for them to decide and then mm -hmm. them to work out amongst themselves and not for us to kind of inject yeah. Um, our American exceptionalism and superiority complex into like other societies that we actually have no understanding yeah, of, like exactly. you just mentioned. I mean, this lack of understanding anything about China at all and then just kind of pontificating as if we should know, you know, we know better than people living there. Yeah. So absolutely incredible, Sheila. Any last words? Where can people find your work? And also what, what sources do you recommend for people to learn more? Yeah, so um, I've written a few articles on Liberation News. Um, that's where I would, you know, check out first. Of course, um, you know, just to get a critical analysis of what's going on, I would obviously recommend your show, Abby, Empire Files, great show, investigative mm -hmm. show. Um, just wanted to say thank you both for the opportunity to talk about Hong Kong and China. I know that um, this this perspective is not really given any light of day in the Western media. So the fact that we're talking about this, it, it means a lot. And it's, you know, it's what we need to do for the movement. So thank you both so much for having me. Thanks so much, Sheila. It was great. Thanks, Sheila. Thank you for listening to this episode of Media Roots Radio. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio. We just added a new $30 tier, which includes a free download code for my documentary film, A Very Heavy Agenda, and Abby's new documentary film, Gaza Fights for Freedom. Thanks very much. <laughs>